Okay, uh, no vacancy. We're talking about the birth of Jesus. Last week we talked about the lead up to the birth. So let's dive right in. It's 11-11. Luke 2, 1 through 7. My goodness, that was a mouthful. Try saying that. It's 11-11, Luke 2, 1 through 7. Let's dive in. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This census was first taken by Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 5, he took with him Mary, to whom he was, to be, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Hence the whole season on no vacancy. There was nowhere for him to stay. My uh, son, I was, I was taking him back up first. I, I love uh, just a thought. I'll share it with you. Andy and I shared a professor in college, and he had this, this perspective on six-year-olds and children and everything else. He said his, his six-year-old asked him one time, he said, Dad, is heaven the place with the most toys? And now this, is, this guy is a Ph.D. He's a very, very well-known scholar of the New Testament. He could teach at any seminary he wants, right? So theology nerd, right? And, and this kid says to him, Daddy, is heaven the place with the most toys? And he looks at his six-year-old son and he says, yeah, buddy, yes. He said, heaven is the place with the most toys. And, and he explained, he said, when, I, when it comes to a six-year-old, I'm not trying to develop theology. I'm trying to develop affection, said it's important to develop, I could have said, well, no, actually, you won't be involved in toys in heaven because you'll be so captivated in worship. What's the six-year-old going to say? I don't want to go to heaven then. There's no toys in heaven. What am I? He said, there's, there's, there's developing an affection and th- theology will form. So I finally had my moment. My six-year-old son, we're riding in my truck and he asked me, he said, Daddy, can Jesus do anything? I said, yeah, yeah, of course he can. He can do anything. And he said, Daddy, can Jesus play Flores Lava and stand on a leaf and still win? (laughs) I guess so. I said, Jesus doesn't even need the leaf, son. He can just, you know, hover above. And then it sparked this game where he started asking me, well, Dad, can Jesus outrun a car? Yeah, son, he can outrun a car barefoot, backwards. Like, it's no, no problem for him. He said, well, can he outrun a motorcycle? I said, yes. He can outrun a motorcycle. A motorcycle can't stop. He said, could he jump over a person? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, okay, Daddy. He said, could Jesus get in this car with the doors locked? I said, yes, son, of course he can get in here with the doors locked. He said, Daddy, can Jesus beat you up? <laughs> I mean, he's going to have to have the Holy Spirit with him, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's going to have to have the Holy Spirit with him, son, but I, I think there's a chance. Yes. And he said, Daddy, could Jesus be in the rain and not get wet? And I said, Son, listen to me when I tell you Jesus can do anything. He can do anything. There's nothing that he can't do. The story of Christmas, the story of the birth of Jesus, if we want to just boil it down to the simplest sermon in a sentence that we can, it is this. There is nothing Jesus can't 
do. Thank you very much. There's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing that's too difficult for him. There's nothing that's out of his grasp. There is no circumstance that can stop his power. There is no dysfunction. There's no broken relationships that can cause him to misstep. There's nothing that can stop what he has the power to do. In fact, it is an easy thing for him to do. Now, now listen, don't mistake me, because though it is an easy thing for him to do, it doesn't mean it's going to be an easy thing for you. That's, again, the story of Christmas. What is the story of Christmas? The story is Jesus can do anything, and it's an easy thing for him to do, but that doesn't mean it is easy in general. He has the power to fix, to heal, to repair, to restore, to do whatever he can do. He can do it. It's up to him, and it's within his power and within his grasp, and by the Holy Spirit, he can do it. And it's an easy thing for him to do, but it doesn't mean it's easy for you. Yet in the midst of it, there are, in the narrative that we read, Luke 2, 1 through 7, I'm going to give them to you very quickly. There are three prophecies that are fulfilled. All three of these prophecies they, they speak to the message that we're talking about at the end. There's nothing that he can't do. In fact, it's an easy thing for him to do. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy for you. Let's jump in. Number one, Luke 2, 1 through 2. Are you with me? Yes. You with me? Yes. Let me, let me I, I wasn't even planning on sharing this. But, but maybe, this, maybe this will help. I, I sense the Lord really wants me to share that with you, and I, I never say that. So let, let me share something with you. I, I had a friend who, uh, he's a professor at a university, and they had a girl that was, that was there. She was a foreign exchange student, and she had an extremely rare disease when she was a child. It was a, de- a disease that, that nobody recovered from, and both her and her sister had that disease, right? And so they were lucky to make their teenage years, and, and lo and behold, they make it to their teenage years, right? So when they became teenagers, they were invited to participate in this case study with 10 other people because they were like some of the only teenagers in the world that were surviving and living with this disease. So they invite these two 13-year-old girls that were, that were sisters, they invite them into this case study. And while they're in this case study, there's eight other people with them. They are, they're given these trial medications. And these trial medications all of a sudden uh, begin to work and things begin to happen in a wonderful way. And all of a sudden the girls reach 18. And when they reach 18, they are found to be living without the disease completely, right? And so this girl winds up in Bible college and she's She's there and she's passionate about Christ and she's telling everybody about the healing work that God has done and they invite her to come and speak at a chapel and share her testimony of the healing work that God has done in her life, right? So she gets up at the chapel and when she steps up to the stage, she takes the microphone and she says, I just want you to know our God is a God of miracles. Our God is a God who heals. Let me tell you my story. And she said, when When I was 13, uh, I was one of a few teenagers that were only living with this disease. And then uh, I started this trial, and my sister did too. And we 
went through this trial, and after this trial, uh, when we hit 18, we were found to be completely free of the disease because Jesus heals. What do you think the crowd did? Come on, what do you think the crowd did? Praise God. They were healed. The work did, God did a work. It happened. And they came off stage and everyone was ecstatic. And my friend, who's the professor, who knew a little more of the story, went to her and went to and asked her and said, hey, um, tell, tell me something. I want to know something. And she said, yeah, sure. What's up? And he said, you preached a great message. He said, I want to know what happened to the other eight people that were part of the study. They all died. She started to weep. Tears started to roll down her face. She started to cry. And she said they all died. And he said to her, that may be the deepest truth that God wants to work on in you. That may be the place that God really wants to work. We celebrate the healing, and we, and we do. We celebrate God's victory. We celebrate His healing. We celebrate all of these things. But if all we do is come together and sing Christmas carols and rejoice in the joy of Christmas and kiss somebody under the mistletoe and open up presents and, and do all of these things and we celebrate the miracle, but we miss the mess, we may miss the deepest truth that God's trying to work on right here. There may be something deeper that God's trying. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to take you to a place of a deeper truth with Christmas. Not that God can do the impossible, but God did the impossible during difficult, horrible, terrible, unbelievable circumstances. And when you know that truth, listen to me, when you know that truth, that's a truth I can get on board with. That's a truth I can walk in. That's a truth I can receive. All right, now let's dive into this. Luke 2, 1 through 2. In the days of Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census of that place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, walk with me really quick. Just, hey, lean in. Lean in, come on, give me, give me a little, a little lean, a little more, a little more, I need a little, lean in with me, and this is all going to make sense, okay? Caesar Augustus was born Octavian. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He had incredible talent, he had a lot of charisma, his uncle recognized that there was some real talent with him, so in 45 B.C., he made his nephew, Octavian, his future heir of the Roman Empire, right? So within a year, Julius Caesar was murdered. Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus divided Rome in three ways. They said, okay, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar is dead. Now it's going to be you, Octavian. It's going to be you, Antony. It's going to be you, Lepidus. You guys have these three places divided. What do you think they did? They fought till the death until there was only one. They fought over it. They ravaged Rome. They destroyed Rome. There were years and years of violence and fighting until all of a sudden Octavian rose to power. He finally defeated Antony and his army in 32 BC. And all of a sudden Octavian becomes the emperor 
of Rome. He is the one who brought the Pax Romana, which is peace by Rome. He's the one who revived the economy with money from Egypt. He reestablished the prominence of Rome, but here's the price that it came with. He dismantled the Roman Senate and forced them to give him the title Augustus, which means exalted and sacred. Rome went from a republic governed by laws to an empire governed by an emperor. And the first one was Caesar Augustus. Alan Kreider, who's, he's an early church history expert. This guy went to Princeton, Harvard, and Oxford. <laughs> Undergrad, master's, doctorate. He's a pretty sharp guy. Here's what he writes about this whole situation. In 42 BC, he said, the Senate formally deified Julius Caesar as Divius Lulius, which means the divine Julius. This led to his adopted son, Octavian, being known as Divi Filius, or son of the Lord, a title that Augustus Caesar embraced. Coins issued by Augustus featured Caesar's image and the inscriptions such as divine Caesar and son of God. An Egyptian inscription calls Augustus Caesar a star shining with the brilliance of the great heavenly Father. Do you see what's happening here? You see what's happening. The Savior of the world is about to come into the world. He is about to be born. And there is this emperor rising up, calling himself the very Son of God. There is a, complete, there's a competing glory for the glory that God deserves. There is this false glory that's rising up, that's trying to take away the glory of God that's reserved for God. And Jesus, Jesus has done this before. Uh, he's confronted Roman power that's rising up. He says in John 19, 10 through 11, he says, why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Jesus is saying there is no power, no matter how much the false glory seems like it's going to be powerful, there is no power that can come that hasn't been given by heaven above. So let me take all of this, right? You have Octavian who becomes Caesar Augustus. He is the ruling emperor of Rome. He is crushing out everyone who is trying to come to power over him. He puts King Herod, you know the Matthew 1 narrative, King Herod starts an infanticide to kill off all the babies that could be Jesus to keep them from taking over his power, right? So he starts all of this power, all of this oppression. He issues, Caesar Augustus issues the census. Census goes into play. All he wants is more tax money. Everyone is going their own way. And Micah 5.2, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy, says, but you... Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Catch this. There was no reason for Mary and Joseph to leave Nazareth outside of the census. Okay? There was absolutely no reason outside of the census. But the census happened and brought them to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. Here is the whole full circle that God can use the things of this world that are trying to steal the glory of God, that are trying to crush the glory of God, or that are trying to stop God's plan from happening. God can use them to fulfill exactly what he wants to do.
As Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I'm thinking for a moment. I've got, I've got a funny joke to tell you right here, um, but I, I, don't think, I don't think I need to tell you that. I feel like we're, we're trying to connect here and we're trying to connect dots, but we're just, we're just a little off. I, I need you to hear me when I say this, that Christmas is a story of impossible circumstances placed on the birth of a child with everything falling into the way. You have an emperor that's trying to steal all the glory. You have King Herod who's killing off all the children. And you have a baby in a manger that was rejected, that nobody cared about, who was born, who rose to power, who defied every single obstacle in his way to fulfill life and life abundantly for us. What does that mean for us? What does that mean? That means that we could be in the midst of impossible circumstances. That means that we could be looking at the most difficult situation in our lives and God can still bring life into that. He can still bring hope into that. He can still bring grace into that. In fact, we'll, we'll just move on to the second one, Luke 2, 3 through 5. So, so they all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Let me put two and two together for you, okay? Judea is under Roman rule. Judea is under Caesar's rule. Caesar does not like any competition to his power. Nazareth could care less. It's a small little farm town with very little power struggle or anything. So he's taking him from a place where it it would be safe for him to be born, and he's going to a place where it's unsafe for him to be born. And in verse 5, it says he took Mary with him. That is an incredibly important verse. I'm going to show you why here in a minute. To whom he was engaged, who is now expecting child. Let's read the narrative from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. It said, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. You realize this. God did not give Mary a baby. God did not give us Jesus. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave us Mary. Or gave us Jesus. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave Jesus to Mary. Verse 19. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Logical, right? Your girl comes to you, you're engaged with her, you haven't slept with her yet, and she tells you she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Believable, right? What are you doing? What Joseph did? I'm out of here. How do I, how do I end this quietly because if I end it publicly she's going to get stoned and murdered and I don't necessarily want that for her so I'm out of here this is a really important part right because this is the place where they begin to travel for the census verse 20 it says as he considered this an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream Joseph son of David the angel said do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit Think about this for a second. 
Jesus was given to Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, who was present at Jesus' baptism, descended like a dove, the Holy Spirit, who was with him before his temptation in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit, who was with him when he went into temptation into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit, who ministered to him after his temptation, the Holy Spirit, who empowered him for ministry after the temptation, the Holy Spirit, who was with him throughout his ministry, the Holy Spirit, who did he promise that he would leave with us after he died, the Holy Spirit, who did he promise would be a helper and help us to do greater things than what we can do now, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is with him the whole time, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Here is the prophecy fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. We'll, just, we'll dive into application. I'll, I'll read you the rest. Here's what's going on. Jesus is coming to be born, and his family is exploding. Joseph is out. Look, I mean, we, we think that this whole nativity scene being his daddy from running out on him, right? Took the Holy Spirit showing up in a dream to beg him to stay or Mary's a single mom giving birth, right? So she's, there's this controversy. There is this drama. There is all of this stuff that's happening. Joseph is heading to a census. And many believe Mary did not have to go with Joseph. So when we read Luke chapter 2, verse 5, and it says, and he took Mary with him, that was his decision to keep this girl that was pregnant before he slept with her. Like, okay, fine, you'll come with me. He brings her there, and when they get there, this angel shows up, and what does the angel say? I know you're going through a lot. Your mind is probably going crazy right now, but here's what you need to know. God's with you. Here's what you need to know. God is with you. Here's what you need to know this Christmas. God is with you. God is with you. It may be a Christmas that doesn't look like any Christmas you've ever had before. It may be a Christmas where the family is all fighting and you're It may be a Christmas where someone's showing up with a new spouse and you don't want them in your home. It may be a Christmas where it's just hurtful and painful and it's not the same as it always is. It may be this totally dysfunctional mess next Saturday. But here is what you need to know. The message of Christmas is that God God is with you in the dysfunction. He is with you in the mess. He is with you in the chaos. He's with you in the confusion. The whole message of his birth here is that God was with them during the disaster. My son, Canaan, Man, that's twice. I owe him two ice creams. Every time I mention one of my children in a sermon, they get ice cream, blah, blah, blah. Don't tell him, and it'll just be uh, between us. But he, he the other day, um, this was crazy. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and he wakes me up crying. He's like, and I mean, this is like, you know, you can tell the difference between your kids' cries. Like, sometimes they're just a hungry cry, an annoyed cry, a hurt cry, and a scared cry. This is like his horrified cry. So he wakes me up, and I just, I look at him, and he's, Daddy, Daddy. And he says, Daddy, someone spit on me and punched me while I was sleeping. Before I knew it, I was 
up the stairs in his room, flipping on lights, looking under his bed. Oh, I didn't even like, it didn't even register to me that this is a six-year-old. My instant thought was somebody's in his room. Somebody spit on him and punched him while he was sleeping. I got to handle business, right? So I run up there and, I'm, and, then, and then all of a sudden like reality set in and I looked around and I looked down at him and I said, what do you think did it? And he said, Dad, I think it was a chipmunk, but it may not have been a chipmunk because it could have been a shark because it sounded like when a shark is eating, but sharks have fins and there's no water in here, so I think it was the chipmunk. (laughs) Son, my gosh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. You're telling me stories of chipmunks spitting on you and punching you when you're like, what are we doing right now, right? And I said, bud. Get in bed. I'm tired. He said, Dad, don't make me sleep in here. Is there a chipmunk? Could be a shark. Who knows, right? I said, son, get in your bed. He said, Dad, I can't sleep without you in here. I don't know. It may happen again. I was like, son, it's called a dream, right? Were you watching Shark Week before you went to bed? I don't know what you're doing. It's it's a dream, son. It's not going to happen. He said, Dad, you cannot leave this room. We go back and forth for like five minutes until finally um, I said, okay, fine. Here's what I'm going to do. And I I went to my office, and I got this. And this was something he and I were, like, shopping. We were walking around. I think it was Marshall's Home Goods one time. And he always does this when he's a kid. He he jumps on my back, and he just hangs on my back. And so he saw that, and he said, Dad, it's you and me. And I said, yeah, bud, it's you and me. And he said, can we buy it? I was like, sure. So we buy it, and we check out, and every time he sees it, he says, it's Dad, it's you and me. Dad, it's you and me, and it sits in my office. Well, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He's got chipmunks spitting on him and punching him while he's sleeping, right? So he's like, Dad, I can't leave here. So I went into my office, and I got this, and I set this next to him, and I said, son, it's you and me, right? And he was like, yeah, it's you and me. And I said, okay, then I'm going to be in here, and I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave this in here. And here's what this is. This is a symbol for you to let you know that even if I'm not in here, I'm I'm in here, okay? I'm in the house. I'm going to take care of you. You jump on my back. You need some help. A chipmunk spits. We're all good, right? Like, you know this is in here. And he said, I said, is that going to work for you? He said, yeah, okay, that, that, that's going to work for me, Dad. So for the next week, he slept with this by his bed. And I wasn't in there, but I was in there. And I didn't have to be in there because he knew there was a symbol that says, I am in there. What is the picture of Christmas? What's the symbol of Christmas that God is with us? And he may be gone now, and his spirit may be here now, but what do we still know? He may not be infant, he may not be man walking the earth, but he is still with us. That's what we carry with Christmas, the story that God is with us. He's with us when it's perfect, he's with us when it's challenging, he's with us when circumstances are great, and he's with us when everything is dysfunctional. He's with us, and he is there with us at Christmas. Now, let's end right here. Luke 2, 6 through 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging for them. That word for lodging is cataluma. That word cataluma is most generally translated cave, which is under the house where the animals stayed. It was like the lowliest of lowly places. It was, it was under the house, the stables, where the animals resided. And what they're saying is, so catch this, right? He's going back to Judea. Why? For a census. 
everybody in the land is going back for a census. Picture yourself like this for a moment. Here, let me give you, let me give you something to, to picture. You're going back to your hometown with all your family and all your relatives heading back to your hometown. Holiday Inn did not exist right now. When you, were, when you were out of town, you stayed with family. was the custom of the day. So everyone is staying with family, and here comes the pregnant teenager of your family. And her boyfriend is saying, hey, do you have somewhere where we can stay? And everyone's saying, what? I, I, I don't think so. Sorry. It's no, actually, uh, you know, it's pretty tight. Your sister has the guest room. Your brother, I think he's coming, but there's, there's no room for you all. There's no place for you. Like, you've got to understand, there was not a no vacancy sign flashing on the end of a hotel. These were family members that saying, you can't stay with us. These were, these were people that he's related to by blood, telling he and his pregnant wife, we don't have any room for you. We can't do anything for you. The whole Luke 2, 6 through 7, is a story of rejection. It is a story of David and his pregnant, soon-to-be wife in a high-honor culture showing up with her pregnant, asking for somewhere to stay, and every single family member saying, ah, not going to work here, friend. No place for you inside this place. We have nothing. In fact, Isaiah 53.3 is a prophecy of this. It says, he was despised and rejected from the very time of his birth. He was rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our back on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. He was rejected. He was relegated to the basement where the animals were staying, where the only manger that was there was shared between an animal and the Savior of the world. Yet he came to make room for us. We had no room for him, but he came to make room for us. Life entered the world and it changed everything in the humblest of circumstances. In the face of rejection, in the face of being despised, it changed everything. Have you heard of these things called birth plans? Have you heard of these? These are the things that first-time moms prepare, right? They're, they're, they're not the thing of multiple children, I'll tell you why, because they never work. They never work. We created, you remember our birth plan that we had? We had this, this incredible birth plan of how it was going to be perfect. We were going to have chilled Odwalla juice and room temperature Fiji water and like the perfect playlist playing and essential oils that were just fumigating the room to, to make it peaceful and wonderful. And no, here's what happened. At 10 o'clock at night, her water broke. We jumped in the car. We rushed to the hospital, forgot all the bags, forgot everything, only had our cell phones with us. Her nails weren't even done. She's so mad about her nails not being done. And then we get there two weeks early get to the hospital, we, we go through all the, this, the chaos, and she's like, play, play a playlist, and I play a playlist. John Mayer, Your Body's a Wonderland, is playing while you're pushing. She's like, shut that off! Like, what is wrong with you, right? And I was like, wow, I mean, the birth plan really worked out for this one, right? So now we show up, and we're on kid number three, and they're like, do you have a birth plan? And we're like, <laughs> yeah, the birth plan is this, have the baby and leave as soon as we can, right? That's the birth plan. But um, our most recent child was a COVID baby. That's a very real thing. Um, and we had a COVID child. And I've never, 
I've never experienced anything quite like it, honestly. Like, first two times, family was there, relatives were there, friends were there, people were dropping off food. They wouldn't even let people drop off food. DoorDash had to wait outside and, like, drop it in the lobby, and it had to go through, you know, checks and all this other stuff, or I sprayed it down and everything else. I mean, it was, like, the wildest thing. We had to wear masks. Santa had to wear a mask up until she was pushing. Like, we, we weren't allowed any visitors in the room. It was just, it was cold. It was dreary. It was empty. It was locked down. It was just her and I sitting in a room. We couldn't even hear what the nurses were saying half the time because everyone had all these masks and everything on, and it was all quarantined, and there were screens everywhere, and it was just cold. It was, it was unlike anything I had ever experienced. And so I'm sitting there. I'm like, man, this is weird. I, I just don't, I can't connect with this. And then all of the sudden, the baby arrived. And even in this room, under the craziest of circumstances, when life entered the room, it changed everything. When life came, you hear the cry of the baby. You hear everyone's like celebrating. The nurses are in there. and Her and I are looking at each other and they're cleaning the baby off and, you know, doing all this stuff. And it was like even in the craziest of circumstances, when life enters the room, it changes things. That's the picture of Christmas we get from Luke chapter 2. It's life entering in the midst of unbelievable circumstances. Imagine this woman for a second giving birth on a pile of straw that was used for animals to feed on and not having any of her family or friends welcome her into her home. And then the baby arrives and she wraps him up in cloth and puts him in a manger that's shared with an animal. Yet life entered the world that way, and it changed everything. Here is the message if I can give you one. It's this. If Christmas doesn't look like you thought it would this year, or if challenges and difficulty are facing you, or if there's family dysfunction, or if everything is just going crazy and the circumstances are more than you can bear, that's the exact same place Jesus showed up. It's the exact same place Jesus arrived. He arrived in the center of unbelievable oppression. He arrived right in the middle of family chaos and dysfunction. And he overcame rejection so that we could have life. 